0: That simple. I didn't do it. <laughs> okay, that's it. It's comforting, though. All you have to do is. <laughs> it's like when you come on a retreat. One time, my teacher Joseph said to me, "I was, I was, my mind was in. So it was a long retreat. My mind was in some construction about, you know, how really to do the practice in, in the way that was j- just for me. And I was, you know, that I thought would be." Th- the best support, and I I was presenting it to him, and he said, all you have to do is sit and walk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, with very, you know, just with this sort of clear, wise, simple, uh, also, but it also felt very compassionate because it it allowed me to really drop into uh, paying attention to, um, in this case, I said, as I said, it was a long retreat, just paying attention to, kind of the natural flow of um, you know how long did you know how long was the sitting gonna last I didn't know so when I gave up on some some of the schedule it just sat down which is just there was just a flow of sitting and then okay now it's time to walk there was a there was a great paradoxical balance of fitting into or um, aligning with the form and also listening to, the um the flow really of uh aliveness that isn't really the form. But it's not not the form either. You know this is the this is the paradox of, of practice. So so today I, I actually wanted to talk about courage and uh, and walking through the door, walking through the door of perhaps a different way, a different way of of being with ourselves. Or maybe, you know, some of us who've practiced quite a bit, we might say, well, it's not really a different way. You know, I have a consistent practice. That's wonderful, uh, truly. And um, I know for myself, with so many years' practice, it it's quite humbling to come up against what I would say is the the conditioned mind, uh, the conditioned habit of thinking, relating to self, to other, to the world. So I thought today we could could, um, hear a bit about um, some of the Buddhist teachings on uh, the path of practice and and also uh how we can apply that and how it how it can support us in our moment-to-moment experience so the buddha uh, i like to think of the buddha as a i know this is rather overly simplistic but it, it was someone who was a kind of a rarefied cognitive scientist mm-hmm. um, and if you think of it, you know, um, no, I won't go over the story. So many of us have probably read Siddhartha or have some sense of the Buddha's journey. I mean, it deserves a lengthy story, but that won't be for now. Um, there was this great human desire for uh, for peace, for freedom. Um, you know, as we know, his uh, he grew up uh, in the one percent and um, was protected um, his parents wanted him to be a king and wanted to, perhaps as many parents do, want to protect their children from pain and sorrow and suffering. Um, And They might have gone to some extremes in terms of uh, keeping him protected from the rest of the 99% of the population, uh, but keeping him uh, around pleasant, as much pleasantry as possible, as much beauty and goodness and um, you know I mean these stories have been carried down for centuries so whether or not they're actual truth or they're they're metaphors I I personally don't get too caught up in that um, because I like to listen in for what's useful (laughs) just what is actually useful in my own practice so um, the story of it always seems to stick with me is where the 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 Buddha's father would have the gardener go out at night and clip off the, the dead flowers so the Buddha would just see the beautiful flowers something was so so visceral about that in terms of that grasping for beauty and pleasure and no pain no sorrow no loss and as we all know it's it's completely impossible and and uh, you know when the Buddha started to seek out past his his personal uh Home, you know, was was awakened by seeing illness, death, poverty, and a uh, um, practicing monastic who looked very peaceful in the face of that. So, in continuing on, as this cognitive scientist began to explore through his own practices and uh, working with his mind and heart to really see well what what brings about liberation. What, what actually, how could this be possible? How could that that person be at peace in the midst of this difficulty? So we might have, you know, 2,600 years later, some of the same questions. How is it possible uh, to be at peace in, in our own hearts and minds when perhaps we're dealing with some difficult personal circumstances of loss or suffering or worldly circumstances that seem to be unavoidable and increasing uh, in terms of let's like, say things like the climate challenge uh, just the um, the way I mean the Buddha talked a lot about greed hatred and delusion and how those qualities of mind lead to great suffering so we, we could easily say there's some you know, rampant greed, hatred, and delusion in, in um, well, maybe across the world, but in Western culture in terms of this deluded idea that if we um, gain more, get more, produce more, accumulate more, become something, that that's going to protect us from pain. And it certainly can get played out into some very um, horrifying circumstances where uh, you and me, and us and them, and, and othering creates um, horrific pain and suffering. So I think a lot about this uh, in, in the worldly life. I think a lot about these Buddhist teachings you know, when I read the news. I've been, I've been involved in spiritual practice since I was 18. So it's, it's a bunch of decades there. and. Um, And I just feel so, both so grateful and also so compelled right now um, to to continue to practice and to share that and to commune with others who are practicing. And I I must say, I mean, I've, I've trained in Buddhism for many, many years, but I don't even mean just Buddhist practice. I mean, some of us have other spiritual practices or practices of love and liberation. Uh, it just seems that the world is is crying for uh, some wisdom and love. And um, thinking of a quote by Joanna Macy, she said, You know, I, I practice so I won't harm other people, so I won't cause harm to other people. It's very beautiful. I'm going to read you a, a quote. Some of you might be familiar with David White. It's an English poet. This is not a poem of his, it's a quote. It's a quote about vulnerability. It's, um, it's, a, it's a word I find myself saying a lot, using a lot, reflecting on a lot. So he says this, Vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not. And most especially to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence. And immobilize the essential title and conversational foundations of our identity. To have a temporary isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely, illusionary privilege and perhaps the prime and most beautiful constructed conceit of being human and especially of being youthfully human. But it is a privilege that must... I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but um, it's for later (laughs) reflection. But it is a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers, powers eventually and most emphatically given up as we approach our last breath. He says... The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely as misers and complainers reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. It's quite an invitation, isn't it? It's quite an invitation to meet vulnerability. So I was thinking of uh, meeting with all of you in this this form of offering a talk. I I just kept thinking of courage, the, of everyone's courage. I don't know you personally, but I feel it just sitting in the room with you. You know, the courage to be here, you know, the courage to sit, sit with yourself, sit with your own mind and heart, sit with others. You may not realize it uh, in the moment because sometimes we just get pulled you know, into the, whatever we're facing, the difficulties of what we're facing uh, or not wanting what we don't want, you know, or wanting or sitting to be different or mind to be different. We forget in those moments when we're pulled in that way how much just our presence here and our willingness to be here and to engage in the practice is a profound gift, a profound gift. Not just to ourselves but to everyone in this room, Daryl and myself included. We would get really bored if we were just here by ourselves. <laughs> but truly, it's it's such an inspiration and it's it's like the visceral, you know when, when, you know in, in this role of preparing for a talk you know, it's like oh, what what feels inspiring. And that's the first thing, truly that, that came to me is the courage of each of you. and how deeply. Uh, inspiring and enlivening that is to me. We forget it about ourselves though. It's interesting. You know I, I, I know I'm generalizing, but I think it's probably a fair generalization that, that we tend in this Western culture to, to um, go after ourselves, you know even in spiritual practice, like should I do it this way, should I do it that way? You know, I'm not suggesting that then don't ask any questions or don't make use of um, you know consulting with a teacher or because it is helpful to see where where we can get um, as I was speaking about today in the in the um, the instruction I was giving is where we can kind of get um, for some of us we may err on the side of striving more and clamping down and just you can feel it, you can feel it in your body and in your mind, just trying so hard you start to get a headache. You know, or, or you might notice like, yeah, I don't really wanna be there. Um, and kind of, you know, spacing out. And um, be careful about what I'm saying here because often in the first day, and unless, in some people sort of run more on the side of having a lot of energy and feeling some agitation, but for most people, the first day, if you think of your switching out of your busy lives, you're, there's a lot of tiredness. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't misunderstand tiredness as somehow you're being lethargic or unwilling. Sometimes we just have to bring our attention to that, to that tiredness and be patient and be kind. Um, it's natural for human beings. You know, we're slowing down. The body recognizes slowing down as it's time to go to sleep. We're shifting into another kind of gear of paying attention and um, living. So, um, in in this quote about uh, that that David White speaks about vulnerability, I, I connect that with the uh, the gift and the beauty of uh, the Buddhist teachings that you know he offered. So. Know, several thousand years ago they seem so applicable today you know that um, you now the Buddha in this cognitive scientist role really uh, uh, basically um, reviewed the the unfolding steps you know that what he looked back on well what was it that that led this mind and heart to liberation what 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 opened you know what what, what was the path so the Buddha um, at that time, in, in a great inspiration of compassion um, upon his awakening, realized uh, this is something to share. This is some, not from an ego place, I have it, but just out of really the, the beautiful heart of compassion that wanting, you know, he said, you know, if, if I could come to this awareness and this awakening and I'm a human being, then others can. And so here we are, you know, that this many thousands of years later where these teachings have been been passed on. So so one of the things that, um, in his cognitive scientific way of just paying attention to the mind, you know, and Daryl was speaking to this in the instructions this morning, you know, as we slow down, pay attention to our minds, pay attention to the breath, you know, life reveals itself, like it or not. I mean, we, we get to see more clearly. It doesn't feel that way in the moment. Sometimes it feels like it's all over the place and we can feel very fuzzy or, or um, you know, counter to that we might have a, a, an insight arises or something, a clear understanding. and You know, that that's, you know, enlivening. And then we think, okay, now, now I've got it. You know, the rest of the practice is just going to be this uphill, you know, Beautiful realm, and then you come back in the next sitting and you feel tired, or all of a sudden you have a kind of a thought storm of greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) What happened? What did I do wrong? I love that question. What did I do wrong? How can I get it back to you know this way? It's natural that we want to feel good, it's natural, but the Buddha taught about this, said that that's actually one of the characteristics one of the three characteristics of life that as we practice we begin to see more clearly is this suffering nature of mind it's the English translation excuse me the English translation is suffering it also could be talked about as the dissatisfied mind essentially it's just seeing that the nature of mind respond to react to the comings and goings the ups and downs of just being alive, just living life. So, um, the tendency of the mind is to want to get away from what is unpleasant and difficult. Okay, that that isn't anything to criticize. That's that's the tendency of uh, the conditioned mind. And so, but what often happens without us seeing that clearly, where we we become in the belief somehow even if it's not a conscious belief it's a running belief that if we just get rid of this particular situation or circumstance or if it will just be gone then then we'll be okay then life will be okay Um, and it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to reflect just a little bit on that and, and realize wow actually it's not Possible. It's not possible to to get rid of what's painful. And equally so, it's not possible to um, commodify what's pleasant. I mean yet we try. <laughs> we you know we will be drawn towards What's pleasant? And when it goes away, again, that sense of self or identity can come in and say, okay, what happened? How can I either, how can I get it back or uh, what did I do that it it went away? Uh, And it's missing the wise insight that pleasure and pain comes and goes. So we know this. I mean, we know this intellectually. I'm not not speaking to the intellect. As a matter of fact, the Buddha said, it is not, you know, liberation is not going to come through the intellectual mind, through the, the, that um, um, conditioned mind. It's, it's actually going to come through a kind of a paradoxical surrender and application. So we're surrendering to, it's just like this. It's just like this, and the application is really bringing our attention to that. So it's not. It's just like this. Forget it. I give up. No, it's just like this. Can I? Can I be interested in it? Can I be curious in it? Can I? Can I open to it? <coughs> and it's interesting. Here's David White saying, you know, speaking to how few, how much we get lost in, uh, in staying away from. Really, and trying to control our lives when it's actually complete delusion that we can. So again, here comes the circle of reflecting on one's courage. It's it takes a lot, in a way, to to open to that uh, that vulnerability of things changing, things changing, things coming and going. You know, not not based on our control, but based on life. So there's there's beauty in that too. There's really I, I was walking earlier um, down by the river and um, or maybe it was the path a little bit in between the river and up here there's layers there. Um, and all of a sudden I, I saw this little chickadee and the next thing I knew it just like flew right into me. It just—it just kind of like, bumped, excuse me, bumped up against me, and I could—I could, I could really—I f- could feel its beating heart, um, and it was something so—so so mysterious about it. I don't—I don't know why that happened. Well, I started to, you know, how you can kind of imagine things like, oh, I wonder if they feed the chickadees here. Because any of you have, have been to IMS or maybe other places where it's kind of a practice to feed the birds, you—you you just walk outside and they start to fly towards you. Really where is the sunflower seeds? But I, you know, I did go through, I wonder why that happened, but really it was kind of a mystery and it was this, this beautiful moment really of connection with this creature. Um, so you know, we can miss those little things sometimes when we're busy in our minds and our doing minds. And that was such a beautiful invitation that, that Daryl offered earlier today to, to take time to connect and reflect uh, and feel really, not just think about it, but just feel that living connection with nature, with the trees, with the birds, and with the air. <clears throat> Anthony de Mello said, uh, some of you may be familiar with Anthony de Mello, he's, uh, he's uh, deceased now, he was a radical Catholic. Very radical Catholic sage. He wasn't super well respected by the more traditional um, Catholic hierarchy. A beautiful uh, teacher. He described enlightenment as this Enlightenment is the absolute and wholehearted acceptance of the inevitable. The absolute and wholehearted acceptance of the inevitable and the cooperation wholehearted, absolute wholehearted cooperation and acceptance of the inevitable. He said something else, he said many things, but I wrote this other quote down. He said, it's a great mystery that that though the human heart longs for truth, in which alone it finds liberation and delight, the first reaction of human beings to truth is one of hostility and fear a few nods up there. Isn't that fascinating? Really? I mean, we long for this freedom, if you will. I'll just use some words. Freedom, liberation, peace. We long for it. We have these beautiful, um, and they seem so simple, these instructions that are, you know, passed along. And yet, it's so interesting just to watch the mind like, no! Mm-hmm. You know, no! And, uh, It's an interesting place of practice to kind of hover around that. Like maybe not sort of necessarily, if you understand what I'm saying, sort of give in to the fleeing, the fleeing into the doing. Even if the doing is like, I'm going to walk my meditation, walk this way, or I'm going to do this for my sitting practice. You can tell even in the tone. That's always helpful to notice the tone when it's like, I'm going to get it down, I'm going to get it right. that's a different quality than this, this, it's, it has a perseverance in it, but it has so an openness, a quality of surrendering. It's like showing up and surrendering, showing up and surrendering, showing up and surrendering. Is this making sense what I'm saying? You know, cause it's, I'm using words here, but, I'm pointing to something that it's very powerful in practice and it's subtle and if we can start to see it we can start to see like what what is the, the machinations of mind here and can we just open to this moment whatever it is like you might notice the breath it might be a sound maybe you're noticing thinking you're noticing longing can we just be present with it and then even notice the commentary about it, because it will come, it will be there. It's like the the music, you know, when you go to the dentist's office, it's in the background. The commentary will be there. And when we can notice that we're lost in the commentary, it's like, okay, when we notice we're lost in it, we're no longer lost. We can come out and just come back to this present moment. It's why the Buddha talked about it as practice and training, because it's It's almost like you find yourself, it's skill building, really, where the more that we can actually bring that attention to just being present and perhaps not be so entranced by the thoughts about what's happening, because they will show up. If we can not actually get so entranced by the pull of it, then we're really hovering in that place of vulnerability, that place of presence, that, it's not even a place, but that energy, that field. And there, there's that, that capacity, really, for freedom is right in that moment, right in that moment. Somebody today was was asking about, um, or speaking to, and asking about compassion, I think. um, Well there's a quote, of you may be familiar with his quote, it's kind of a famous quote that, uh, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, love tells me I'm everything, and in between my life flows. So the wisdom factor is this, this characteristic that the Buddha talked about, this third characteristic of this illusion of a separate self, this illusion that, um, that we do have control, that, that we're separate from each other. And, um, and in a conventional way, of course we are, you know, we each have our own personalities, our names, our lives, our individual lives. I mean, that's not, that, that doesn't disappear when we practice It's part of our lives. But as we investigate into this this mind of of sepa- sense of separation or sense of control, we begin to kind of see its illusoriness. Like, for instance, if you're sitting in meditation and you're noticing sa- sound is coming, or you're 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 feeling the movement of your breath, um, and you begin to notice how it's changing, you know, meaning awareness will notice different things at different times. Whatever calls you you might even begin to notice that about thought. As we practice more, the mind settles more. Even if the mind is active, awareness notices thought like it might notice a sound coming and going or uh, or a sensation coming and going. The thought comes and then it goes. And it's really interesting to pay attention to. And as we begin to see those thoughts coming and going, that grip of this is me, like I am my thought, I am what I think about that also starts to loosen and we just, we just begin to see it is all coming and going that sense of um, me, my, mind mine starts to get loosen up uh, and at times this can be a very liberating um, experience so to speak an yeah, experience it's rather than a thought it's that direct experience of it And sometimes it can be very frightening, too. It's unfamiliar. We're not familiar with it. So then we can just bring our attention to that fear as it arises. What's born, which I think Nisargata was saying in this quote, in between my life flows. So the wisdom factor is seeing that empty nature, if you will, of this sense of self. But the love factor is really seeing our interconnectedness. That we, when we, we begin to really meet our experience that directly and that openly, it it's just natural that the understanding becomes pretty clear that, well, if that's happening for me, it's happening for everyone else. You know That I'm in this in this flow of life that we call human, and our hearts begin to open quite naturally. It's non intellectual, it's a, it's an evolution of presence, of practising presence, if you will, like training our minds and hearts to come back again to this present moment. Because it can get pretty boring, you know, it can get pretty boring or or we're looking for the fruit, you No, know, we're looking for the result, or we start to get into that selfing of, I'm not doing it right, or should I do this practice or that practice, and doubt arises, and we can, we can get pretty despairing. So that might be a perfect time to reflect on, wow, if this is happening in my mind, this suffering in my mind, here, now, in this meditation, sitting in this moment, chances are it's happening for someone else in this room. Maybe plenty of people beyond this room. And we start to open to that, that shared humanity. So what happens when we open to that shared humanity? What's possible? Because it's not just a here in a meditation retreat. You know, we're not just practicing to do well on a meditation retreat. It's, it's really how do we meet our lives? How do we relate to our, our own experience in our life? Whether it's, we may be, we may be in the midst of incredible grief or loss. How do we meet that? Can we meet it with a tenderness towards ourselves? compassion, care. It's different than self-pity. Pity is considered the near enemy of compassion. You know, in another way um, that I think we meet our sorrows is uh, being with others. You know, coming together on retreat or or being with others in our lives that that hopefully can Uh, can support this um, recognition, if you will, of vulnerability. Sometimes it's just so freeing, isn't it, when someone just shares from their heart. It's comforting. It's permissive. These, uh, these three characteristics that the Buddha talked about, the understanding, suffering, uh, that it, it's part of our human conditional reality and uh, seeing the impermanent nature of things, things coming and going. I have this little little joke that I tell. Um, my mom is 93 and, uh, and she still lives in the house that I grew up in. So I'm in my early 60s. She moved into that house with my elder brother. She was pregnant with my elder brother. So she'd been there for quite a while. And um, sometimes I say to my friends, you know, everything's impermanent, like the Buddha said, except 47 Purden Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, when I was, was young as a teenager, but impermanence. It was a structure I couldn't wait to get out of. <laughs> um, just chomping at the bit to have more freedom in my life and get some space from um, my parents. And um, now I go to that home, and there's there's such a sense, in a way, of um, sweetness and and comfort. You know that. Uh, there's my mom. She's, you know, she's she's still alive, and and at the same time, it's really meeting impermanence because here's this this woman who had a lot of agency and power even um, with me as a child. She raised me, brought me up for better or worse, and now it's like the tables are turned, and there's so much. She has some early dementia, and so there there's a. Uh, there's so much vulnerability um, that when I walk in that door, it's like that. She's just on that edge of being able to live on her own and not, and um, it's so tender. And um, you know, her mind is—I mean, she can't really keep. She has short-term memory loss, so so it's just this hovering with this vulnerability of aging um, and. keeping, allowing my heart to stay open and meet that because there's an aspect of that that that's also painful in a way. Maybe because I can't fully protect her from whatever she has to face and that including at some point, maybe in the near future, of having to leave this home. You know, some of us have that experience with aging elders and some of us have the experience of perhaps losing someone young, and someone's, whether they've gotten ill or been um, injured or hurt in an accident, you know, we don't always have that opportunity to, I'm very aware of that in my own personal life, to to, um, have this time with my mom. Um, We don't know, really, do we? I was so touched, you know, reading uh, some of your what you shared um, on your um, forms that you filled out of just what you know what you're encountering in your lives, with um, with losses and challenges of you know young and old. We don't know what we're going to meet in life. Man. It takes strength, it takes courage to meet what's difficult. takes courage to, to have an open heart in the face of sorrow. But without facing sorrow, I'm not sure we can really feel joy. I don't know what that trade-off would be. If we, didn't, if we couldn't open to our sorrow, if we couldn't feel our joy, what is life like when we're just shut down? And it's like that sometimes. So maybe we just meet that with compassion. I guess we'll go back to Joanna Macy's comment too of, you know, I practice so I won't harm others. That that here we are, we're less than thirty people in the room here and who knows what the benefits of our practicing here together are. You know, who knows how they'll, this applying ourselves and paying attention and taking this time, how it will impact our lives, other people's lives. But here we are. And uh, I know for myself, I just feel like our, our world is so in need of wisdom and compassion. So. So maybe even though we're in our individual minds, particularly when we're silent, you kind of feel like your mind is in a you know, loudspeaker just with yourself. <laughs> you know, maybe there's something bigger happening, much bigger happening that, um, that serves not just ourselves individually, but serves the world. So I think with that I'll uh, I'll close with a little piece of um, prose from a woman named Elizabeth Tarbox. I believe she's a Christian minister. I'm not sure which tradition. It's called Rebirth. When the day's too bright or the night too dark and your feelings are like an avalanche barreling down the mountain of events outside your control. When you look down and you are falling and you cannot see the bottom. Or when your pain has eaten you and you are nothing but an empty, hungry hole then there's an opportunity for giving. Don't stay home and cover your head with a pillow. Go outside and plant a tulip bulb in the ground. That is an act of rebirth. Sprinkle bread crumb- crumbs for the squirrels or sunflower seeds for the birds. That is a claiming of life. And when you have done that, or if you cannot do that, go stare at a tree whose leaves are letting go for its very survival. Pick up a leaf, stare at it. It is life, has something to teach you. You are as precious as the birds or the tulips or the tree whose crenellated bark protects the insects who seek its shelter. You are an amazing complex being with poetry in your arteries and charity layered beneath your skin. You have before you a day full of opportunities for living and giving. Do not think you know all there is to know about yourself, for you have not given enough away yet to be able to claim self-knowledge. Do you have work to do today? And do it as if your life were hanging in the balance. Do it as fiercely as if it mattered, for it does. Do you think the world doesn't need you? Think again. You cleanse the world with your breathing. You beautify the world with your giving. You perfect the world with your thinking and acting and caring. Don't stay home and suffocate on your sorrow. Go outside and give yourself to the world's asking. So let's just take a moment to to sit together. May we each meet our experience just as it is in this very moment, with wisdom and compassion. And may all beings benefit from that.